Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day folks, welcome to the show. It's an extra helping session we've got for you today. And of course, we're going back to those two episodes we did, one on the plagues Mm. and the other, of course, on your going for a song. So let's start with the plagues, Mikey. As we said, it's not just bubonic plagues. We've also, of course, most recently had COVID. But you want to talk about another one of these Endemics. Yes, mate, the Spanish flu. Ah. As you might expect, this this is actually a huge topic. And look, we'll probably do a whole show on it at some stage. But look, here are just a few quick key facts that I felt we needed to we needed to touch on in response to some of the questions we got asked after that plague episode. Okay, the Spanish flu. Look, we all know by now it didn't come from Spain. Yes. In fact, there, there are f- quite a few theories on the origin of H1N1, to give it its proper name. <laughs> But the most prevalent seems to be that it originated in the American Midwest mm. at either a pig or poultry farm mm-hmm. sometime around the beginning of World War One, and that its ground zero could have been a military training camp in Kansas. Ah. And it was these troops that brought the virus to Europe when they crossed the Atlantic to serve on the Western Front. Ah. By 1918, it was not just in Europe and America, it was starting to turn up in Asia and spreading across the world. Right, so just like that last great plague, the bubonic plague of the 1890s, and you know, how we mentioned it was spread by steamships. So this time, the problem was being compounded by the hundreds of thousands of soldiers crisscrossing the Atlantic, I suppose, you know, all crammed next to each other on these ships. But then again, Mike, if you just said they're coming from America, why is it called the Spanish flu? Well, mate, you can blame the Brits. <laughs> In fact, the British Medical Journal, they were the first to use the phrase, the Spanish flu. Mm. And this was because, and this is a bit like COVID, Spain was one of the first countries to really cop it. In fact, it almost killed King Alfonso the Thirteenth. Ah. But more importantly, neutral Spain was not subject to wartime press censorship, ah. which made things a bit easier to pin the name on the Spanish. Mm. Now, the Spaniards, they referred to it as the Naples soldier. The German army called it something called Blitzkatar. Blitz the Blitzkatar, yeah, yeah, that's a sort of like the great cough, isn't it? Oh, the great cough. And the English Tommies, well, at first they called it the Spanish Lady or Flanders Gripe. Mm. But it very quickly goes down in history as the Spanish flu. Now, the response was pretty much what you would imagine. Handshaking was discouraged. Schools, churches and theatres were shut down. And here's a throwback to a pre-digital age. Libraries put a stop to handing out books. <laughs> and that's without mentioning the masks, I'm guessing. Yes, mate. Actually, actually, masks were very heavily encouraged in England, although The Guardian wrote, women are not going to wear ugly masks. <laughs> actually, and this may come as no surprise, a lot of the early efforts, particularly in Britain, were around downplaying the severity and not panicking the country. Mm. The Times suggested, you know, the famous Times newspaper suggested, it was nothing more than a result of it, I'm quoting here, the general weakness of nerve power known as war weariness. <laughs> in Egmont in Cumbria, 
one local health official actually wrote to the local church urging them to stop ringing funeral bells because he wanted to keep the people cheerful. <laughs> sort of original keep calm and carry on, I suppose. Exactly, mate. But you mentioned funeral bells. There must have been quite a lot of them because didn't this outbreak get worse and worse as it came on in waves? Yes, mate. In fact, the first wave, well, this was identified in the spring of 1918 and, and, and it was relatively, and I'm stressing the word relatively, <laughs> mild. Then in autumn of that year, you get the second wave. Now, this killed some 25 million people in 25 weeks. Mm. This was brutal, with many victims hemorrhaging in the nose and the lungs and dying in three short, painful days. Then by 1919, a third wave, which was more moderate, comes along, and by the end of the year, the virus subsided, but it wreaked absolute havoc in a very short period of time. Right, so it's obviously had a huge effect on public health and public health policy, I suppose, as well. And if we're talking mass, I'm guessing that didn't play particularly well back in America. Well, yes and no. Well, here's the thing. At first, America really seems to get the idea. By the fall of 1918, San Francisco, Seattle, Oakland, Sacramento, Denver, Indianapolis and Pasadena put out what amounted to mask mandates. And these were on the whole observed. But there was, of course, you're not going to believe this, the Anti-Mask League. Right. And, mate, how's this for history repeating itself? There was an article in the LA Times that bemoaned how many maskers had their masks but just wore them dangling around their necks. Right. Up to 1,000 so-called mask slackers (laughs) were arrested on November the 9th in San Francisco in Mm. one day. And those who wouldn't pay the $5 fine would spend two days in jail. Wow. And then it gets nasty. A bomb was planted outside the office of the San Francisco chief health officer, a guy called Dr. William C. Hassler, when after the first mandate passed, he suggested reintroducing another round of mask wearing. It wasn't as crazy as it was today, but, <laughs> well, you know, much there was one big difference back in 1919. Celebrities were accused of not donning their masks because they couldn't stand the idea of not being recognised when they went outside. Right. And what about here, Mikey, in Australia? Because the Spanish flu came down here as well, right? Yes, mate. It was first reported in Darwin from a ship called the Matram, which had arrived from Singapore in October the 18th, 1918. Then returning soldiers on steamships also led to another outbreak in Melbourne in early January. But both of these seem to have been the somewhat more benign first wave. But by January 27th, it hit Sydney. And it appeared that this was the far more troubling second wave of the virus. Mm. The city of Sydney was officially declared infected. In fact, as was the whole state eventually. Libraries, schools, churches, theatres, both live and cinema, were all shut down. And by the 29th, the wearing of masks in public places became compulsory. Mm. Actually, speaking of troop ships, there's one incident in February 1919 when about 50 soldiers had, well, they'd had enough of being quarantined on their troop ship, the Argyle Shah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't help but feel sorry for them. You know, they've just gotten back from the horrors of the Western Front and they're now stuck on board with their beloved Sydney, a short swim or a, a rowaway. Mm-hmm. So, so they commandeered three boats and they made a break for it. Ooh. Most of them got caught by the water police. Mm. A few more were captured around the harbour. One, one Nova Castrian even caught the train to my old suburb of Cooks Hill before being caught. And a few days later, the one straggler left. Well, he politely handed himself in at the Phillips Street police station. <laughs> 
We also have, and I'd never heard of this before, devices known as inhalatoria. Mm. And, well, basically, inhalation stations, which were set up in public places, and or even portable devices that you could use in your own home, or, as was often done, installed on railway carriages or tram cars. Mm. This was a steam-driven device that sprayed an atomized mixture of steam and, and zinc sulfate. And it did nothing to stave off the virus. But remember those fart jars we talked about in the Great Plague? <laughs> yeah. Well, mate, there is something to be said about the calming effect of placebos. But, of course, the most useful thing was the masks. Mate, look, Sydney ciders on the whole didn't have a problem with mask wearing. Now, this could be bought at, at department stores like, like Myers, who both in Melbourne and Sydney sold women the stylish Yasmak mask, mm. which was a, a protective veil that hung from just under the eyes down to the chest and was advertised as being novel, neat and effective. <laughs> and for a small extra fee, it could be custom made in varying shades to harmonise with hats and frocks, etc. <laughs> now, now, hoods and masks, they can be bought from street vendors, department stores, as, as I mentioned, chemists, or, or even homemade. The Red Cross produced thousands and thousands of them, which, yeah, us being Australians, they all got nicknames. They got known as Dog's Muzzle, Nose Bag, Toothache Bandage, <laughs> and my favourite, Pig Snout. Ooh. They were pretty much embraced, but there were two notable exceptions of people who did not wear masks. Look, there was one idiot who appeared in court for not wearing a mask, but his defence was he was wearing one, but his mask was invisible. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work. Another person to cop the one-pound fine for not wearing a mask on public transport was Eileen Lee. Now, you might have heard of her. Mm -hmm. She was the daughter of one of Australia's most infamous criminals, Kate Lee. Oh, yeah. But on the whole, and along with a whole bunch of other factors, it's still recognised that the Australian willingness to wear masks did help us curtail the virus. Look, somewhere between 12,000 and 15,000 Australians died. But on the whole we fared far better than many other countries. Excellent. Okay, well, so keeping on with the subject of plagues and masks, and, you know, we talked about the fart jars and how they were used to ward off the plague the first time round. Well, one thing we didn't mention was also the leather costumes that many of the plague doctors used to wear. Oh, I've seen paintings of them. They're like really scary bin chickens, like that terrifying ibis. Well, that's it, Mikey, and in fact, quite a few of the listeners have sent pictures in because we're talking about the 15th and 16th century plague now, and these were the peculiar costumes which doctors wore to protect themselves when they attended infected patients. And we know what they look like because they've actually been illustrated in drawings, one by Paulus I from 1656 and another one by Jean-Jacques. And these very clearly tell us exactly what the doctors were wearing. In fact, the best examples come from Nijmegen, which is an old Dutch town in Gelderland. Now, don't worry, folks, we're going to be putting a few of these pics on the socials. But just to give you an idea, we're looking at protective gear going from head to foot. It's all leather and oilcloth robes. You've got leggings, gloves, a big hood, a wide-brimmed hat... And a sort of beak, like Mikey was saying, a bit like an ibis. They've also got the glass eye protectors, a sort of early form of gas mask, mm -hmm. with the two breathing nostrils, which were filled with the aromatic herbs and the flowers we talked about to ward off the miasmas. And even more bizarrely, they actually avoided contact with the patients, not just by wearing these crazy costumes, but also by very much keeping their patients at arm's length. In fact, when I say arm's length, Mikey, it's more like stick length. They'd issue the prescriptions 
by passing these prescriptions through the door on the said stick. <laughs> and then the buboes, you know, the bubonic boils, yeah. the way they lanced them was by still standing out in the street on the other side of the doorway and attaching knives several feet long to the sticks and poking them through. And that, folks, is something you're going to want to see. I mentioned last week that one of the topics we were going to touch on today was uh, cannibalism. So, Paul, get stuck in. <laughs> okay, Mikey. Now, for this next one, we're going back to that great ships episode we did. And also, do you remember that original Batavia yeah. ep? Yeah, the one about the shipwreck off the coast of Western Australia and the suggestion that during the chaos and the mutiny that broke out amongst the castaways, there was a distinct possibility of cannibalism being involved. Well, we've had more than one tweet mentioned that really this shouldn't come as such a surprise because the reality is the idea of stranded sailors eating one another is not as unusual as it might sound. In fact, a number of listeners have pointed out eating the cabin boy (laughs) when things got tough was pretty much an accepted part of going to sea. So I've looked into this and they're certainly not wrong. So much so, Mikey, that cannibalism was even known amongst many of the crewmen at the time as the custom of the sea. And the one story I think we really should tell is the very famous legal case in England, the sinking of the Mignonette. And interestingly, once again, it involves Europeans heading out to these shores here in Australia. So we're talking 1884, Mikey, and it's the 19th of May, and the Mignonette is setting sail out of Southampton, heading under sail for New South Wales in the harbour city of Sydney. Nothing unusual about that. Right, hundreds of boats would have been making similar journeys every year back then, some by sail, some by steam. But there were a few peculiarities that stand out about this whole Mignonette story, a story that's as grisly as it is macabre. Oh, you're just being too polite to say cannibalism. <laughs> yeah, OK, cannibalism. All right, so in the 19th century, just like any century, I suppose, cannibalism is nothing new. You know, Herodotus talked about it being practised in the wilds beyond the Caspian Sea in ancient times. You know, various Egyptian historians recorded widespread eating of the dead and the dying through the great famine of Cairo in the 13th century. In fact, evidence all over the world, from the Arctic to the Polynesia to Napoleon and the retreat of his troops from Moscow, they all do mention cannibalism. But the thing is, as taboo as you'd think cannibalism might be, it actually seems, Mikey, there were some unwritten rules. Oh, the customs of the sea. Yes, particularly when on board a ship at sea. And it's because the case of the Mignonette seemingly broke these rules that the series of events that followed caused such a scandal. Okay, so first I'll tell you about the ship, the Mignonette. It's a small yacht, about 33 tonnes, 52 feet in length, and previously it had been an inshore fishing boat, and then it had been turned into a yacht cruiser used for racing in the Solent, you know, the channel, that kind of thing. But it's being purchased in England by a Sydney barrister and the commodore of the Sydney Yacht Club, a guy called John Want. And he wants this vessel, he wants it over in Australia, so that he can win all the local races over there. But of course, he, you know, he doesn't want to do all the hard yakka of actually sailing it over there, so he wants to employ a couple of old sea dogs to do the dirty work, while he returns by regular steamer, you know, <laughs> sipping cocktails in his deck chair. Yeah, fair enough. Now, in terms of route, Mikey, like we said back in that Batavia Normally the tall ships, you know, the big boys, they would go down the west coast of Africa and then they'd follow what was known as the bulge, which is the easterly winds that take you across 
to South America. Then you go a bit further south down to the tip and catch the great westerlies, which will push you over to the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. And then, of course, you've got the Roaring Forties, which will keep you going on to Oz. But this yacht, like I said, it's called the Mignonette. And it's being given that name for a reason, because a Mignonette, Mikey, is the delicate green herb you serve with oysters. It may come as no surprise to you, Paul, but I actually know that. And it's being given that name because it in itself is a delicate green little boat. And as such, it's too small for those big seas that the tall ships would take that would get you right out into the middle of the Atlantic. So it needs to stay instead on the African side and use the smaller winds that go down that coast. Now, that's not quite the straight line that the steamships would have taken, but it was hoped that by using this lesser-travelled route, it'd still only take 120 days to get from England to New South Wales. But of course, as you may have guessed mm. about this story, halfway there, they hit a storm. And really, Mikey, it couldn't have happened at a worse point. They're now 3,000 kilometres south of the equator, off the Namibian coast. They're really in a sort of no-man's land between Africa, the continent, and the mid-Atlantic. So, of course, the chances of anyone being around to come to their rescue is pretty small. Like I said, the storms hit on the 5th of July. A gigantic freak wave rises from nowhere, crashes into the side of the yacht, stoving in the hull meaning all those on board need to abandon ship. Now, like I said, you know, Fancy Dan John, he's nowhere to be seen. Oh, yeah, that's right, because he's the owner of the boat, but he's on a steamship. Yes, and the people he's employed to do the crossing for him are certain Captain Thomas Dudley, the mate, Edwin Stevens, Edward Brooks, and a 17-year-old cabin boy, Richard Parker. Okay, so the Mignonette, it's filling with water. It's not going to be saved. They've abandoned ship. Three of the men get into the lifeboat, over the side, while the captain, he goes back in just to see if he can possibly gather a few provisions to take with him. You know, the seawater's already swilling around the cabin, but he manages to grab two tins of what he thinks was preserved meat, race back onto the deck, and then leap into the dinghy as the mignonette sank below the waters. Now, the storm, that continued to rage around them for days. You know, they've got no fresh water. Unfortunately, those tin provisions turned out to be <laughs> turnips, and after 19 days of nothing, you know, catching tiny little bits of rainwater in their waterproofs or maybe, you know, the odd stray turtle, it's obvious it's never going to be enough. In fact, young Parker, he starts drinking seawater to alleviate his burning thirst, which if you ask any seaman is a real no-no. And sure enough, this young Parker's soon lying in the bottom of the boat in a delirious state. So these Poor four men. They're racked with hunger, despair. They don't really know exactly where they are at all. So on that 19th night, Thomas Dudley, the captain, he suggests that they should draw lots. Now, yeah, I mentioned about this custom of the sea, and drawing lots is how it's done. Spoiler alert, folks, but I, I have a feeling we've reached the bit about them eating one another. Well, that's it, Mikey. They're drawing lots to see who should be killed to provide food for the rest of them so that the rest might live. As I said, the custom of the sea. But I'm afraid, Mikey, as you might expect when things come to the crunch, more than one problem arises. You see, first of all, Brooks and Stevens, they say, no, let's wait a couple more days. And then the next morning, Captain Dudley changes his mind. You know, poor Parker, the cabin boy, he's not just delirious by this stage. He's vomiting, he's turning ghastly green, fading in and out of consciousness and it's clear that whatever is to become of them all from now on Parker's never going to make it and he actually could probably die at any moment so now Dudley the captain he says that rather than draw lots 
it makes a lot more sense to sacrifice the boy so that the others might live a little bit longer, you know, and pray to God, be saved. Look, to be fair to Dudley, he's very straight up about this, and he records the whole thought process in his captain's logbook. You know, later we'll hear that Brooks says he objected to this point, but the reality is, after, you know, praying for young Parker's soul and asking for forgiveness from the Lord Almighty, Stevens, unfortunately, has to hold the boy down while Dudley slits his throat with his knife. You know, the boy's killed. And the three men, you know, they set about drinking his blood and feeding on his flesh. Right, so you weren't joking when you said we were going to have some real live cannibalism in this episode. Yeah, I'm afraid so, Mike. Yeah, once they killed him, they did embark on the gruesome task of cutting him up into little pieces. You know, some to be consumed there and then, some to be rationed. But of course, all in the hope of staying alive for another few days. Yes, right. (laughs) But incredibly, their luck changed. Another off-course ship, the bark, the Montezuma, suddenly it appears over the horizon and comes to their rescue. And this is where it all starts to get interesting. Because you see, Captain Dudley, he returns to England courtesy of the Montezuma. And he reports the loss of his vessel, of course, as he has to do as the captain. But he also, in his report, includes the hardships that they endured afterwards and the death, or you could call it murder, of the delirious Parker, because you see, as abhorrent as his actions were, he did not believe he'd committed a crime. In his mind, he'd sacrificed one life to save the other three. But whether he thought he'd committed a crime or not, Mikey, he and Stevens, they're soon remanded in custody to stand trial for the capital crime of murder. And to make matters worse for those two, Brooks then turned state witness in return for a pardon. Like I said before, his argument was that since no lots had been drawn, he hadn't wanted to go along with the plan, even though, of course, you know, he joined in the eating of poor Parker as much as the other two. Now, as you can imagine, Mikey, there was huge interest in this tragic story, both in Britain and in Australia, and many people actually appeared sympathetic towards the captain and his first mate. But obviously, there were also those who felt the pair acted prematurely and deliberately killing Parker when perhaps they could have waited for him to die. So they weren't that bothered by the cannibalism then? No, well, that's right, Mikey, you know, customer of the sea, like we said. But the court case that follows, that really does get everyone tied up in knots. You see, no one was denying that sailors in the past had been forced to resort to cannibalism in order to survive. But the big question for this case was whether Dudley was right to kill the dying boy because, in effect, he was just accelerating the boy's condition in order to save the others? Or did his actions constitute cold-blooded murder because he hadn't gone through the charade of drawing lots? Okay, so what do the lawyers say? Okay, so at the trial, Dudley and Stevens, obviously, they're pleading not guilty. And their barrister, Arthur Collins QC, he argues that they acted in self-defence. He used the analogy that if two shipwrecked men were on a plank that would only support one, one or the other could be excused for pushing away the other man to drown because if both men had remained on the plank, both would perish. And did the judge agree? <laughs> Not one I owe I'm afraid, Mikey. You see, he argued, how could it possibly be self-defence? Because Parker, you know, at the bottom of the boat was hardly endangering any of the other men's lives. What really imperiled the crew was not the presence of Parker, but the absence of food and drink. I can see how that makes sense. Yes, and sure enough, the jury, you know, they find the pair guilty, and the judge passes down the only sentence open to him, which is the death penalty. But word soon gets out 
that it's actually all been a bit of a stitch-up to placate the admirals of the sea and the Royal Navy Board. And of course, you know, to feed the frothings amongst the more extreme members of the media. Okay, so this, I'm guessing, is where some of your your classic old British imperial shenanigans come in. (laughs) That's right, Mikey. And to truly understand why, we probably need to look around at just what's been happening in Imperial Britain in the century before this, particularly in regards to the Royal Navy. You see, this Mignonette voyage, this is in 1884. But back at the end of the 18th century, the late 1700s, some would say as far back as Oliver Cromwell, Britain had realised that if it was going to be a world superpower up against Spain and France, especially France, Britain realised that while it was unlikely ever to be able to combat French forces in terms of infantry and men on the ground, it did have the wherewithal with with its innumerable ports and ancient seafaring tradition, Britannia did have a chance of ruling the proverbial waves. So long before the Industrial Revolution kicks in, the naval revolution of Britain, primarily on England's southern coast and its ports, this saw the Royal Navy developing supply lines, production lines, ensuring all employees were well-fed and quartered to maximise their efficiency, and also, very importantly, taking ship design to a new superior level, so that they, the British, were making by far the best boats. Now, of course, this meant that by Nelson's time, the beginning of the 19th century, Britain was leagues ahead of its continental rivals and still coming up with new and groundbreaking improvements almost every year. Yeah, also known in some quarters as Rum, Solomy and the Lash. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point. And some of these reforms, of course, weren't universally popular. Indeed, some had to be forced upon the Navy and its captains, usually in Parliament by the likes of you know, the people like Samuel Plimpsoll mm. with his Plimpsoll line, that kind of thing. But many of the improvements, they were instigated by the Admiralty themselves, and it was something they were very proud of. But. (laughs) Right, because all these reforms, they only applied to the Royal Navy. The British Merchant Navy, the private navy, it was still very much separate and considered to be, if not a law unto itself, then at least the rogue element. Which I'm kind of guessing Nelson and his ilk were not very keen on. (laughs) That's right. And so a case involving some of the older, more outdated ways... The uh, colloquial customs of the sea. Yes, any chance for the Royal Navy to lay down the law, clamp down on unwanted or obsolete practices, and generally (laughs) bring the merchant navy hierarchy to heel, this was a chance not to be missed. So for the British government, the Admiralty, all the powers that be, this is not so much a case of Regina versus Dudley and Stevens, but more the Royal Navy being able to impose its will, remove any practices reminiscent of the bygone era, and start ruling ship-shape Bristol fashion with a brand spanking new iron rod polished (laughs) within an inch of its life. Got it. Oh, and and there's nothing quite like the Brits for imposing rules and regulations, eh? (laughs) That's right, Mikey. But to muddy the waters even further, it seems the powers that be then did a deal with Collins, the barrister representing Dudley and Stevens, and promised him a promotion to the Queen's bench in return for his clients accepting whatever judgment might be passed upon them rather than kicking up a stink or seeking to take the case to the Court of Appeal. Even though both men were still claiming their innocence. Yes, and even though Parker's family had come to the trial in person to make clear to everyone that as far as they were concerned, the captain and his mate were forgiven and the matter was closed. 
So they both go off to prison. But fortunately, while those at the Admiralty wanted to preen their feathers and teach the Merchant Navy a lesson, at the same time, other members of the government had been doing some back-channeling via Collins, and the two men had been promised that as long as they didn't cause a fuss and kept their noses clean whilst inside, one way or another, they would find themselves once again free men. Which is probably what they should have been in the first place. Yes, well, at least that's the conclusion I think they should have been arrived at. But anyway, once the hullabaloo had all died down, both sentences were commuted to time served, and poor Dudley and Stevens were finally released. But there is one silver lining, Mikey, because Dudley, despite all those setbacks, he actually heads out for Australia again, this time as a passenger on a steamship, as he'd always planned to emigrate had he been able to make the original journey on the Mignonette. So I'm glad to say that washing his hands of the mother country and its conniving and corrupt powers that be, Dudley was able to live out the rest of his days a free man here in Sydney. Well, after that cheery tale about cannibalism, <laughs> I thought, how can we finish this episode? And we were talking uh, in a previous episode about the music and royalties, mm. and I mentioned how that you know, Happy Birthday was the song that made the most money of all time. But here's the thing. If you wanted to make money from a song and royalties, here's a few things you need to do. Firstly, you need lots of people to do cover versions of it. It's good if you get it into a movie, and it doesn't hurt if it's written about Christmas. Mm. Which brings us to the number two song after Happy Birthday, White Christmas. Right. I'm getting, written by the, the brilliant Jewish songwriter Irving Berlin. Mm. It's made famous by Bing Crosby. Look, it's earned $36 million since it was written, in, and that's just in royalties, and it's sold over 100 million copies. Wow. Number three, and this is an unusual one, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Mm-hmm. Now, it was written by husband and wife team Barry Mann and Cynthia, Cynthia Mann. Well, also, Phil Spector helped as well. And and, and Barry and Cynthia, they released it as a single, and it was a minor hit, but then the Righteous Brothers get their hands on it. Mm. It's been covered over 2,200 times, Mm. and its worth in royalties up until 2022 is estimated to be round about $32 million. Wow. Number four on the list, Yesterday. And strangely enough, it's the only Beatles song on the list. The only Beatles? Yeah, it's made $30 million and it is still one of the most played songs on radio of all time. Mm. Now, there are so many legends about this song that, you know, it came to Paul in a dream. And then when he woke up the next morning, he actually phoned up George Martin and played the tune to him over the phone saying, Mm. have you heard this before? And then my favourite story is that for for weeks it was called Scrambled Eggs until until he actually came up with the lyrics. Then we get to... um, um, Unchained Melody, and this is a bit of a personal favourite because my old mate Paul McDermott sang this at my wedding while, ah. while Laura and I did the Bridal Waltz. Well, Laura Waltz, and I, I followed her. <laughs> it was written by Alex North and Hi Zarrett, and you're going to believe this, originally it was written as a tune for a prison movie called Unchained. Ooh. But once again, along comes the Righteous Brothers, and they cover it in 1965, and then it gets another lease on life, in that rather soppy romantic film from 1990, Ghost, mm. with Demi Moore and, and Patrick Swayze. Yes. And once again, by 2022, it had racked up $27.5 million in royalties. Which brings me to number six, a, a great song, Stand By Me. Yes. Now, this song actually combines three great songwriting geniuses. 
On one hand, you've got Lieber and Stoller. Mm. Now, these were hit makers for, or for many genres, but they gave us Elvis Presley's Hound Dog, which they actually originally wrote for Big Mama Thornton back in 1953. Mm. But for Elvis, they wrote Loving You, Trouble, Jailhouse Rock, Treat Me Nice. They also wrote... Yakety Yak and Love Potion Number Nine for the Coasters, mm. as well as a, a huge hit for the Drifters on Broadway, which most people know as a George Benson song. Yes, dum dum dum. But here's the thing: Benny King, who they wrote with, he was no slouch in the songwriting department either. He'd also written Under the Boardwalk for mm. the Drifters. Sure, huge hit for them. So by the time those three get together in 1961, they release. Stand By Me, with Benny singing, and it becomes a massive hit. And here's the thing too, when the Stephen King movie comes out in 1986, it gets another lease on life. It's made $27 million, that one song alone, and it's been covered by everyone from Otis Redding to Miley Cyrus to a rather underwhelming 1963 version by, you've got to believe this, Muhammad Ali. <laughs> right. And if you're around my age, you probably remember John Lennon's hit version from his 1975 rock and roll album, once again produced by Phil Spector. And the less said about Meatloaf's long-hidden <laughs> reggae version, the better. <laughs> now it's time to go back to Christmas. Number seven on the list is Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Okay. Released in 1934 by... A banjoist, banjoist Harry Reeser, and was written by a guy called J. Fred Coots and another person called Haven Gillespie. Now, it sold over 400,000 copies in that year alone, mm -hmm. but was mostly driven by Eddie Cantor performing it on his nationally famous radio show in the November of that year. Ah. Look, it's been covered by everyone, most famously by Mariah Carey. Bruce Springsteen still covers it and <laughs> plays it at his Christmas concert and Justin Bieber kicked in a version as well, which means that Santa Claus is Coming to Town has made $25 million. Wow. Which brings me to number eight. Every Breath You Take. Yes. Yeah. So yeah the, the, the police song. Yeah. Sting's classic from the 1983 album Synchronicity. And let's be honest, mate, it is one of the most misunderstood songs of all times. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's not forget, a lot of people play this on their wedding day. Yeah. But if you listen to the lyrics, it's actually more about stalking than being in love. In fact, Sting admits he wrote the song after the traumatic breakdown of his first marriage. Uh -huh. There we go. Every breath you take, yes. every move you make, every bond you break... I'll, I'll be, be watching, watching you. Oh, can't you see you belong to me? My poor heart aches with every step you take. And then it just keeps getting creepier and creepier. <laughs> now, when it comes to covers, P. Diddy reboots it with Faith Evans in his tribute to his late friend, Notorious B.I.G., with I'll Be Missing You. But here's the thing. If you listen to the sample, it's actually Andy Summers' guitar riff that gets sampled in this hit tune but Sting is actually the songwriter. Ah. So Andy didn't get the money. And in fact, Sting to this day still makes three quarters of a million dollars a year from every breath you take. Wow. It's made over 20 million bucks. Which brings me to nine on our hit parade. Um, Pretty Woman. Oh, Pretty Woman. Roy Orbison and Billy Dees. Mm -hmm. Hit single in 1961. But when the movie Pretty Woman comes out in 1990, it was rediscovered. Now, of course, you know, Roy had passed away, but co-writer Billy Dee said just before his death in 2012 mm. that the song Pretty Woman was still making him anywhere between $100,000 and $200,000 a year. Wow. Which brings me to the last song on the list, and, of course, it's The Christmas Song. 
written by 19-year-old Jewish singer and son of Russian immigrants who are fleeing anti-Semitism in Russia, Mel Tolme, and lyricist Robert Wells. Now, Robert actually would actually go on to become a really successful TV producer and scriptwriter. But back in 1944, they wrote The Christmas Song. And it's been covered by everyone from Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett, who you, mm-hmm. you know, you'd expect, to country and western star Garth Brooks, as well as you know, the 90s boy band In Sync, The Carpenters, Ariana Grande, Christina Aguilera, and no surprise, it was a smash hit for your mum's favourite singer, Michael Bublé. <laughs> and its best-known line, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, mm. which is interesting because it was actually written in the middle of an extremely hot July heatwave. But it's made over $19 million. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. And you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there. Lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. (laughs) Right, which brings us to next week. And next week, folks, well, let's face it, it's Paul's wheelhouse. It's his pet topic. He's an expert on it. We're going back to the Silk Roads. (laughs) 